So what we want to do is uh, today's teaching is going to be covering of unleavened bread and the first fruits. And I put uh, the title for this uh, teaching today, our new identity and inheritance. That's important because uh, the, the aspect of salvation, folks, unfortunately, through many years of dogma has been diluted and more diluted through every generation. So today we have no understanding truly of what biblical salvation really entails. And I'm really, this is one of my, my uh, best feasts that I really enjoy. But more so, not so much because of the food, but because it gives me an essence and an understanding of what my Savior did for me. And I believe that if we can comprehend that, the evidence will be revealed on our daily walk. But not just our daily walk, the way we talk, the way we think, the way we process things. It's completely different. It is literally, as the title says, a whole new identity. Now, part of the bigger problem that we have today is that there actually is an identity crisis because we're not really reconciling the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with our daily walk here today, or rather our identity. Much of this has to do because, folks, well, uh, again, indoctrinations for thousands of years, just being surrounded by the nations. We think like the nations. We reason like the nations. And today's teaching, I pray that it will be a blessing to you. We're going to see how this even affected ancient Israel. When Hashem, for instance, called them out of Egypt. You know, it wasn't just come out of Egypt. Okay, great. Let's go to the promised land. We're there next day. It's a 40-year process, folks. Okay. For us, it's taking more than 40 years, but it's because it's much needed. Amen. So uh, what we're going to do is before we actually get started, I want to share a video that is regarding uh, Passover. So I thought it was very, very good. And uh, with the words that actually the author says in here in the video uh, uh, really, really sits well with me because in reality, again, we have a misconception of salvation today. So watch the video and then we'll go ahead and get started with the teaching. Amen. Every Passover, we talk about freedom. Freedom from slavery. Freedom from Egypt. Freedom from Paro. But freedom from isn't freedom. Unless there's freedom to. Because freedom without direction is abandonment. Freedom without direction is confusion and turmoil. Freedom from means something when we know where we want to go. I remember when I was a child, I had a hamster. And one day, I felt bad that he was trapped in this little cage. And so I brought him outside and I let him go free on the streets of Los Angeles. And thankfully, someone found him in the street among all the cars and trucks and brought him back. And I didn't realize it at the time, but a baby hamster in a giant world, that's not freedom, that's a death sentence. God's entire purpose of taking us out of Egypt isn't freedom from, it's freedom to. He's not just taking us away from Egypt. He's taking us to Mount Sinai to learn what it means to be a Jew, to learn to be a light to the nations, to receive the Torah that would change the entire world. Passover is the time of freedom because we didn't just leave Egypt and wander aimlessly to die a death of assimilation in the desert. We began our journey to Mount Sinai 
to accept the Jewish people's unique mission to repair the world. If we stop living as Egyptians, but we don't start living as stronger Jews, then we're not free spirits, we're lost souls. At this year's Passover Seder, let's really make this night different from all other nights. Don't just leave Egypt, go towards freedom. Make Passover the beginning of a new Jewish journey. Happy Passover. Amen. Lots of good word concerning that, folks, because <clears throat> that is the issue that we're having today is that we accept salvation and then, well, we kind of lost. I mean, you couldn't put it better. It's like, okay, we, we go and we answer the altar call. We come to the front. We accept the blood. And now we're lost. We don't know exactly how to walk everyday life other than love your neighbor as yourself. But even that can be subjective. And it changes from denomination to denomination. So this is where the importance of understanding unleavened bread. Now, one thing that he talked about is that the, and he says the Jews, talking about the Jewish faith, essentially. What he is talking about is the reparation of the world. In Hebrew, that is known as the tikkun. Each one of us has been entrusted with a tikkun. And that is the ability and the empowerment to actually make a change in the world. And they call it the reparation, literally repairing. Uh, as a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah talks about repairing the breaches. That's the idea, folks. So we just partook of Passover, and now we have entered into unleavened bread, folks. Now the change begins, folks. Now, and I love the way he put it, from Egypt, where did they go first? Mount Sinai. That was, that was the first destination. He didn't take him out of Egypt and say, well, let's just go straight express I-40 straight to the promised land. No, it was from, the, from Egypt to what? Mount Sinai. And then from Mount Sinai to the promised land. That's the order, folks. That's the pattern of salvation. We accept the blood of the lamb freely. Let me ask you a question, folks. All Israel that was in, in uh, Egypt, how many of them actually had to keep the Torah in order to be saved from Egypt? No, none of them. None of them. He didn't say to them, here's my law, first get it right, and then I'll take you out of Egypt. He didn't say that. All they had to do was take the blood of the land and put it up on the doorpost of the doors. And if they would have done that, they would have been redeemed. It's redemption, folks. That's redemption for you. Notice that there was no really, the only act of works at that point was that in faith they needed to do that, right? They needed to accept that. But as far as ruling system, he never said, okay, well, I'm sorry, but you know what? You didn't get the whole Torah quite right, so I'm going to just keep you in Egypt until you get it right. No, they were in Egypt. They weren't even getting Torah in Egypt. Let's put it that way. Which is the reason why the Father took them out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai to receive the word of Hashem. So let's look at the order of this before we get started. Let's just follow the order of this. They were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, right? And then immediately after that, they were proceeded, they marched into Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. So which one came first, salvation or the law? Salvation. You're getting it. The pattern is right there for us, folks. 
But, you know, through men's traditions and all these different things, that was profane. They actually changed the order. Men changed the order. Men said, no, we need to get the law right before we can come out of Egypt. And this is what we've been battling. And this is what we've been seeing. And this is what we believe thus so far. But the reality is it was never intended. It was never given that way. So after salvation, what is our duty now? To learn the word of God. To have that word so that we can go where? To the promised land. Now, you see, this is where it's going to get really, really confusing. Because they have to stop in Mount Sinai first before they can go to the promised land. Right? How many of us want to go to the promised land? I'm talking about the real promised land, right? Hopefully, you're here today. And it's not just to hear me. You're here for something much greater. Much, much, much greater. And that is the word of truth. Amen? So, let's look at this. Let's stop for a minute, please. Just entertain me for a minute. I'm very tired. So, I need cooperation from all of you. Okay? When I go like this... You say, yay. No, I'm just joking, just joking. Just joking, just joking. <laughs> when I go like this, oh, no. <laughs> when I go like this, bam, baru, we say, no. <laughs> no, no, but and no jokes aside. Seriously, guys, this is what we're looking at. They came out of Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai so that they can go to the promised land. Now, that's an important factor. That's an important factor to understand because, you see, what's happened is that we have taught, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem you out of Egypt. We're going to kind of kick Mount Sinai out of the way, and we're going to take you straight to the promised land. You getting me? If you're getting me, please say something. Amen. There you go. That's what we have done. We have literally kicked Mount Sinai out of the way and said, no, we don't need Mount Sinai. We can go straight from Egypt to the promised land. And that has developed and has given birth to a false gospel, a false salvation, to be honest with you. Part of the process, folks, of the Geulah in Hebrew, that is the restoration, is that we all need to turn back to Mount Sinai. Because, you see, we got ahead. And now what we have found is that, oops, we can't enter the promised land. We have to retract back. You see, we missed a ticket in Mount Sinai. See, and there's an officer right there at the promised land when you're going to check in. He's going to ask for your Mount Sinai ticket. And you don't got it. See, because somebody told you that you didn't have to stop in Mount Sinai, that you can just go straight from Egypt to the promised land. So now they're making you turn back. But that's not a bad thing because now we're all coming back to Mount Sinai to receive his word. Amen? This is the aspect of unleavened bread, folks. This is where I'm going. You know, this nice little story I just gave you is not just a story, even though I just came up with it now. Just kidding. But the reality is this is it. It takes us back to unleavened bread. Because, you see, what we did was we skipped unleavened bread. We went from Passover and skipped unleavened bread altogether. In actuality, we even skipped first fruits. We just went straight to Shavuot to receive the Holy Spirit, which that's a whole nother subject. I ain't even going to get into that right now. Okay, so listen, I got a, I got a time here. So now let's get started with unleavened bread. Today, unleavened bread. Amen. Exodus 12, 15 says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Indeed, on the first day you cause leaven to cease from your houses, it says. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day into the seventh day, that being shall be what? Cut off from Israel. Now, I'm going to make a disclaimer. Okay? 
whenever you read in the Bible, I don't care what point, whether in Genesis or in Revelation, whenever you hear God said, I will cut you off, you might want to listen. If you take anything out of the teaching today, take that part. Whenever he says, I will cut you off, it means something serious. Because he doesn't say, I'll cut you off for everything. Interesting. He doesn't, for every sin, he doesn't say, I'm going to cut you off. But there are certain sins that he said, I will cut you off. Those are the ones that you want to kind of listen and heed. By the way, one of those is the Sabbath. But anyways, so moving on in here. So it says, on the first day is a set-apart gathering. That's what we're doing today. This is the first day we are actually doing a gathering. What is the word here for gathering? It's a corporate rehearsal in Hebrew, literally, without getting into the whole details. A corporate rehearsal. So that means that a corporate rehearsal, it has to be more than just you and your home. It's gathering with your people, folks. Getting out of your comfort zone, meeting with other believers. This is what they did consistently. Why do you think that on the day of Shavuot, it says that there were so many people from all over the world? What were they doing there? Because they had this understanding. They understood that the High Holy Feast is a day that, is a day that we gather with like-minded believers. Amen? So on the first day, is a set-apart day, which means a holy day. And on the seventh day, you have a set-apart gathering. So we're going to have another one against when? Thursday, Thursday night, Friday day. Yes, Thursday night, Friday. I know it gets confusing with the calendar, right? By the way, next week is, is, is a double Sabbath, just in case you don't know. Because you got Friday and you got Saturday, so it's back-to-back -back two Sabbaths. Yoo-hoo! It's great. Don't look depressed. Look happy. You can tell your boss, I can't work. God says so. That's that. There you go. You see? Ahead of time. But we're, we're going we're gonna to put that in the announcement later on. So no work at all is to be done. Uh, is to be, it's done on them. Only that which is eaten by every being that alone is prepared by you. So let's look at this. And you shall guard the festival of unleavened bread. What is that word guard there in Hebrew? Anybody know? Good crowd. Shamar. You are to protect it, literally. You are to guard it. You know what happened with Adam? He didn't shamar the Garden of Eden. You see? We've been trusted to be a watchman. So you are to protect the holy day. From the day it starts to the day it ends, you need to make sure that you keep it sanctified and holy so that you don't defile it. Amen? So it says, You shall guard the festival of love and bread. For on this same day I brought you divisions out of the land of Egypt. What should be the focus today? Today's focus should not be about, well, did I eat my piece of unleavened bread? Even though you should. But I hear what I'm saying. What is the real focus? You know, God uses natural things to understand spiritual concepts. Okay? The focus of today is that on this day, he removed Israel out of Egypt. In a sense, kind of like what the video said. We were set free to go somewhere, essentially. You were free now from the bondage of sin and death, and now you are free to go and serve God. To me, that's amazing. So on this same day, I brought you divisions out of the land of Egypt, and you shall guard this day throughout your what? Generations, he says. He didn't say you should guard this day until the Messiah comes, and then we're going to flush everything down the toilet. He didn't say that. 
He said, you are to guard this throughout every generation. Guess what, folks? We're still here on earth. This is a generation that we're living under right now. <laughs> Amen? But it doesn't just say throughout your generation. It says, and what? An everlasting law. Why? You think God wants to remind us that you were set free? And why would God be interested in reminding you that you're free? Oh, I don't know. Something tells me that the affairs of life and through everything in modern world that we live in, we will forget that you were set free. And I will submit to you, it's very easy to forget that you were set free. Very easy. Because we get so involved in the everyday affairs of life, don't we? That sometimes we forget, wait a minute, I was actually set free. And I don't have to follow that path that everybody else follows. That's the purpose of, of salvation. You don't have to live like your neighbor, by the way. You don't have to keep up with the Jones anymore. You can be free to be what God has called you to be, and that is righteous. Amen? So it says, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, in the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month in the evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, that same being shall be cut off in the congregation of Israel. Now, it's interesting the, how that's worded because it says for anybody who is actually caught eating leaven, they're going to be cut off, not from the people of Israel, but in here, the word plain, what it uses is actually says the kahal of Israel. That is literally, and we covered this a lot in our Torah portions, the church of Israel, the assembly of Israel, if you want to call it. Because what is the congregation? It is the Hebrew word kahal. And that translates back to the Greek from the LXX to Ecclesia, which means the church. Interesting. You see how the Father reveals layers in here? It's no longer about you being a person or you're, you're grafted into a genealogy group. No, you are grafted into a congregation named Israel. Changes things, doesn't it? Because you see, when we talk about a Jew, we like, well, I'm not Jewish. Oh, you're probably not. Not in the flesh, you're not. But it's not about the flesh. It's about the faith. Understand that. There's a difference. That's why in here he says the congregation, just in case we all get those little doubts. Oh, well, I'm not with them. I'm my, I have my own identity. That's them. I'm not bound to that. Okay, yes, you are. Because if you're part of a congregation, you're part of it. Congregation is not limited to your bloodline. Amen? And, and in the event there's any questions about that, what does it say immediately after that? Whether sojourner or native. Now, I will submit to you probably all of you in here, most of you in here are sojourners. You're not natives. Unless you can prove your, your Jewish blood, you're not. And that's okay because he said it doesn't really matter. For the congregation of Israel, he's not requiring a bloodline. What he's requiring is obedience. He's requiring to be a part of a family. He's requiring for you to declare that he is your God here today. Amen. Do not eat that which is leaven in all your dwellings. You are to eat unleavened bread. Now, this doesn't make any sense. And for most of you today, well, in the last probably couple weeks, all of you have been doing what we call a spring cleaning, right? Right. Because that's the label that we call it today, a spring cleaning. But you know, what? it's okay because that's where did the spring cleaning, the idea of a spring cleaning came from. Right here. Interesting. 
Because what is it that you do? You search every crevice of your house looking for what? Leaven. Now, for the outsider, they're going to look at you like you're probably a little crazy. And then you're getting rid of all your bread. I mean, that's sacrilege right there. Okay? But remember, folks, since when, ever in the history of mankind, does the word of God make sense to men? As a matter of fact, I can show you in scripture where it's the other way around. The word of God is actually foolishness for men. Because man is man, it's flesh, he's not spiritual, amen? So what is the idea of cleaning the houses? Why we clean all the houses and do all these things? Well, I want to suggest something. I know most of you actually do it, if not all of you in here do it. But I, what, I, what I want to make sure that you understand is that as you clean in your house, let it not become a ritual. We are creatures of habit, folks. And unfortunately, we turn everything into a ritual. And a ritual, a lot of times, can have no substance, no meaning. In other words, it can become a burden if you have no substance be you know, behind it. So why do we clean the house? Because as we're cleaning every little crevices and every crack in our house, we should be doing that with ourselves. That's the idea. The Father wants you to search deep inside your heart and search for every little crack in your heart. Hopefully you don't have any. Okay? And search for the leaven that's there. Getting this. So there's nothing wrong with the ritual. It's what I'm saying. That's great. The, the Torah commands it. But let us not stop there. You see, this is the problem that we have today where it really turns people off. When we see, wow, they're doing the great rituals, but then they turn around and they don't represent it in their lives. By the way, that's called hypocrisy. <laughs> right? We want to make sure that we are representing if we're searching the house and every crack in the house, do that with your heart. Do that with your mind. Do that with all your being as well. Because I guarantee you, you're going to find something there. If you're finding something in your house, you're going to find something in your heart. And that's the general idea. Amen? So unleavened bread. It is the Hebrew word matzah, okay, which means, of course, unleavened bread cake. means, obviously, bread without any leaven in it. So leaven is a spiritual representation of disobedience depending on the context and scripture because leaven is not always necessarily means sin we're going to find out later in shavuot that you were supposed to bring leaven bread to the altar oh but i thought it represented no it's not always see this is what we got to be careful with scripture it doesn't always mean context it's just like real estate context 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 location 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 right in the bible when you're going to approach the bible everything is context in regarding the festival of matzah, it's regarding sin because we're getting ready the, the leaven. The leaven puffs up. So the idea is you're getting ready, you're getting ready, you're getting rid of your haughtiness, getting rid of pride, arrogance, sin. Leaven is also associated with false teachings. Now, what is false teachings? Anything, I'm going I'm, I'm to give you a very simple answer. Anything against Torah is a false teaching. There's your answer. Everything, everything against Torah is a false teaching. Richard, what if it's 99.9%? .9 it's still false teaching. Well, at that point, it's a deception. Simply put, look, Yeshua fulfilled the feast by going to the grave with no sin. 
This is where, you know, he, when in, in Luke chapter 24, when he regarded that he said that everything that was written by Moses, the prophets and the writing was regarding him. He was essentially letting them know that everything that surrounded Israel, all the feasts, everything, there was a prophetic meaning that pointed to him. So we start, we start by Passover, right? And we understand how he fits the royal Passover. But how about unleavened bread? Well, did he sin? According to the gospel, he didn't. And if he did, we're all in trouble, right? But we know he didn't. So we're safe. He went to the grave with no sin, unleavened bread, essentially. We fulfill this feast by living. How do we fulfill the feast? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a disclaimer. Whenever we say here, that Yeshua fulfilled it, it doesn't mean that you, can, you don't have to do nothing. If Yeshua fulfilled it, that means that you need to fulfill it. Wow, that's completely contrary to what you ever taught in your life, right? If he fulfilled it, it doesn't mean that you are free not to do it. But rather, now you are free to do it because he did it. Make sense? So how... If Yeshua is a fulfillment of unleavened bread, no sin, how is it that we can fulfill that when we already sin? More on that in just a minute. So it says in here, or oh, I put in here, we fulfill this feast by living a life dedicated to him, meaning keeping covenant and obedience. Okay? Living a life by keeping covenant means we will not mix our worship and we will live by his standards. See, the thing is that we are more critical with ourselves than God is towards us. That's the truth. God is not looking at the sin that you committed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 100 years ago. Possibly her, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> just joking. You guys don't pick up, man. Anyways, <laughs> no cooperation for this group. So anyway. But that's the idea. He's not looking at your past sins, but rather he's looking at what, are you, what have you done since you said yes to me in Passover? What does Torah mean? It's teaching instruction. It's from the root word yada, which means to what? <laughs> to aim. Are you aiming towards the Torah since you said yes to him? Or are you saying, I don't need it because you die for me? What is, what, is, what is the common denominator here, folks? It's the intent of the heart. See, God is not looking at you keeping the Torah perfectly because the reality, there's a lot of things in the Torah that is kind of gray area today. A lot of the stuff that we are out of the culture. How do we fulfill? I mean, there's a lot of questions. But rather what he's looking at is, are you aiming to keep my Torah? Because if you're aiming to keep my Torah, guess what? For the heavenly father, that is Dainu. That means that is sufficient. That's what he's looking at. And guess what? The fact that you're looking to keep his Torah, he's going to give you revelation in how to do it. Because he is merciful that way, amen? Living a life, folks, and keeping covenant, you're not going to mix your worship. I don't know how many times in my past experience I have people that have joined a Passover Seder. Not here. Just pass that have joined a Passover Seder, and then the following week, they're, they're celebrating Easter. You know how much that really aches me, like you wouldn't believe. Sorry. Even my eye twitches when I say that. Really? 
so we can come to God in any way, shape, or form that we want to? All roads leave, lead to heaven? The standard is the entire word of Elohim, folks. You want to honor God? Honor him the way he says so. Simply put. Don't go out of the box. Don't get creative. Because if you get creative, you're going to mess it up completely. You're going to defile it. That's why he set the standards. And he said, this is the way I want you to do it. Don't veer to the left or to the right of it. Stay in that path because that is the perfect path. You want to live perfect? Follow what he says. Don't get creative. Now, if you want to do extra for God, guess what? Pray more every day. There's no such law against that. God didn't say you can only pray once a day. Pray extra. Fast more. Do all these different things if you really want to do like more. If you feel like I'm not doing enough for God, guess what? A little bit of fasting wouldn't hurt you. A little bit more prayer certainly would not hurt either as well. Matthew 16, 11 through 12 says, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, he says? This is Yeshua talking to his disciple regarding what? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. But to be aware of the what? Leaven. Notice how our creator spoke. And if you notice how the prophets of old, like for instance, Yeshayahu, Ezekiel, Moses himself, all of them spoke in a lingo that is foreign to us. I mean, honestly, let's pause for a minute in here. How many times do you go around telling people you got some leaven in your life, buddy? You go into town and say that. They're going to look at you literally like you are out of this world. But this is the way they spoke. They spoke terms like a burnt offering. When was the last time you went into town and told somebody, hey, so you, were you a, a good burnt offering yesterday? <laughs> what? <laughs> Get a rope. <laughs> but seriously. You know, we, we, we don't understand that they spoke this way because this had a meaning that took them back to a teaching. See, this is why he's saying to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I'm going to tell you today, you need to be aware today of the leaven in the teachings that you are following in YouTube. And all over the internet. Because there's a lot of leaven there, let me tell you. It's filled with leaven. Be careful what you're listening to. Honestly. You know, the internet's a beautiful thing. It's a great tool. But it can also be a very, very bad thing. And I submit to you, we're starting to see a lot of bad in it. The, the negative aspect of the internet. Hebrews 10, 26 says, for if we go on sinning now, here we're going to cover what, uh, the question. We're going to revisit back that question. How is it that we can live a sinless life? Oh, live without sin. Because remember, Yeshua fulfilled unleavened bread. So now we have to fulfill unleavened bread. Let's say the, the writer of Hebrews in here, the author, actually shares some light in that. It says, for if we go on sinning, what? What does deliberately mean? Because English is not my first language. What does that mean? Uh, hey, at least I'm, I'm honest. I don't know what that means. What does it mean? Willful disobedience. By the way, I did check out the word. <laughs> okay, willful disobedience, right? For if we go on sinning deliberately, it says, 
not coming short, willfully. There's a difference. What is the difference? The intent. The intent. You know, if you kill somebody, it's not just black and white. If you take the life of another individual, the Torah actually makes a distinction and sets you free because you could have taken the life of an individual on the basis of self-defense. See? But you still kill somebody. That doesn't change. You kill somebody. But again, it's not black and white. It's the intent. You were trying to defend yourself. And in the process of defending yourself, you happen to kill somebody. Unintentionally. That's the degree. That's why in Leviticus, it talks a lot about unintentional sins. Because it's always about the intent. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Do you understand what kind of heart this is? You came to me, I shared with you the beautiful word, I gave you the pearls. Because you know that the Torah is known as pearls and jewels. That's why it says, don't cast your pearls to swines. Don't be just giving pearls out there freely, folks. I wouldn't. That's a pearl to me. I will only share that pearl if I see that you are worthy to receive that pearl. You better be worthy to receive it. And you're going to show me that you're worthy to receive it. After the knowledge of the truth, if they do not receive it, guess what? There is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Wow. And honestly, think about that. Now, I know that doesn't sit well with people's stomach in here today. But that's the reality of the salvation of Israel. If truth comes to you and you deliberately, we're not talking about, ooh, I didn't know. No, you deliberately, you know what to do. You know exactly what you need to do. But you're telling the father, I ain't doing it. What sin sacrifice can possibly be available for you then? What can Abba Father do with you? Because if this is the case, if we're accepting that even if we deliberately sin, and we're going to cover that in a minute, if we deliberately sin and continue to sin deliberately, then it's probably safe to say that Satan is going to be in heaven with us too. Well, God said in his word, you cannot be partial with your judgment. So if it's good enough for us, it's sure enough, it's got to be good enough for Lucifer. So that means that all the demons and Satan are going to be yeah, rejoicing with us in heaven. Now, folks, see, there's a penalty. There is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Simply put. But a fearful expectation of judgment. What does the Bible said? That Lucifer, the ruler of this world, has been what? Judged already. Why has he been judged? Does he need to get a chance? No. Because there is no sacrifice remaining because he's not turning and he won't turn. Simply put. And a what? Fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. James 4.17 says, To him then who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is what? Sin, coming in agreement with what the writers of Hebrews says, essentially. John 3, 9. Now, here's what we're going to talk about. First John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. Now, what do we do with scripture like that? Because let me tell you, I bet you a lot of people stumble with this one. We stumble so bad that we just recreate a whole new doctrine. It says, whosoever is born of God, were you born of God? You better say yes. You partook of Passover yesterday. 
Okay. It says, he does not commit sin, it says. For his seed remain in him, and he cannot sin, it says. Because he is born of God. See, folks, this is why I love about the word of God. Translation, 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 like context, context, context. Plays a big role. Let's look at this word commit. It's going to come in agreement with what we've been learning so far. It is the Greek word praso. And look what it means. A primary verb to practice. That is, perform repeatedly or habitually. So let's go back. Oh, actually, we don't have to. It's right there. Whosoever is born of God does not habitually practice sinning. <laughs> you see the difference? He does not practice. He does not say, well, I'm not going to do the Sabbath because I don't have to, even though he knows that that is his duty. If you're born of God, there's no possible. What First John is saying that if you're born of God, there's no possible way you could have that attitude. If you have that attitude, then you need to check your heart. Obviously, something went wrong in the Passover Seder. Something that wasn't disclosed to you that you're not aware. But you need to check your heart. Because if, the, the, if you really accepted the blood, and you really accepted the Mashiach of Israel, then this won't exist. Now, it's not saying that you won't sin, but you won't practice sinning. In other words, you might have you not known. Hey, I didn't know that. I mean, how many times we look back now in our walk, and we say, wow, I really messed up three years ago during that Sabbath. But you were still doing Sabbath, but you did something that is in prohibition against the Sabbath, but you didn't know. That's different. It's not what God is talking about. It's talking about altogether just abolishing the Sabbath, not the details of how to fulfill a mitzvah or commandment. That's where it makes the difference in here. So look, the result of Passover produces a what? An unleavened life, folks. And what does unleavened life means? It means that now we have a desire to please the creator, to please the king. We have a desire to want to learn more. And by the way, folks, when you have a desire to want to learn more, you don't come to the teacher trying to teach him. I got news flash for you. You don't come to the teacher saying, well, I'm going to learn from you, but from here I got it. That's not a humble heart. You're not coming with the right attitude. If you really want to grow in knowledge, folks, you need to empty your cup. Empty your knowledge that you have with the exception, the exception that Yeshua is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to the Father. Everything else, flush it. And come learn Yeshua through the Torah. This is the problem that we have in mixed seeds. Mixed seeds. Mixed seeds is bad, folks. Really, really bad. How many of you like to plant and grow food? Most of you in here, right? How about if I were to give you some good seeds mixed with some GMO seeds? Why not? Mix the seeds, man. Put a little bit of GMO and a little bit of organic. Seriously? But we're doing that with the word of God. We're saying, well, I want the organic word. I want the seed, but I'm going to keep my GMO. What I have right now, the polluted one. I'm not willing to let go of this. That's the issue that we're having today because we're not completely coming with a humble heart to learn this. 
And part of the problem is that most of us, no intent against religion, but primarily what we see in the Messianic movement is Christians coming in. We don't see a whole lot of Muslims, although that does exist. But even for Muslims or Hindus, it really doesn't matter what denomination you come from. The problem is that we're coming to the word of God thinking that we know something. That's the issue. And what does that come from? What does that stem from? Because somewhere down the line, somebody lied to you and told you that you were not grafted into nobody. That's the problem. We're coming still with that mentality. Okay, everybody knows God in their own little way. But if you're grafted into a family, you come with that understanding. Let me ask you something. What gives you the right to change the family values? Honestly. Scripture says that you were grafted into a great congregation called Israel. What gives you the right to say this is the way it is? That's pride and arrogance. We follow what the family has been accustomed to, simply put. You know what? If we did that, we wouldn't have all the divisions that we have today. That's the problem. We've got divisions everywhere. Everybody's going in their own little way because everybody thinks that, you know, everybody and God are like this. Right? Got to get rid of that, folks. So Passover marks the redemption, meaning salvation by grace. I'm going to keep reemphasizing on that. Why I'm reemphasizing on that? Because it is important for you to understand that. Why is it important for you to understand that? I'm going to give you a quick example, then we're going to move on. For hermeneutics, okay? For understanding how to explain your faith. Also, apologetics. It is important to understand salvation because many of us today are saying, well, at least I have salvation. I may not have Torah, but I have salvation. What's the problem with that statement? <laughs> you don't have Torah, you don't have salvation. So that's my point. This is why it's so important to understand this. You have salvation, but you have rejected Torah. Or maybe the other way around. You have accepted Torah, but you have rejected Yeshua. See, this is why this is so important to understand in both ways. Because if we want to minister and we want to speak life to people and we want to bring the reality and the truth of God's word, then we need to know what we're speaking. We have to have foundation. We have to understand salvation through the foundation of Moses. How was that delivered? How did Mashiach deliver that message? How did Apostle Paul explain salvation? Otherwise, we're going to be telling people, it's okay, it's okay, at least you're saved. And you're giving them a false hope. That's what's the problem today. That's why many Christians, Hindus, and you name it, won't come to Torah. You know why? Because they feel they're saved already. Well, if Torah is an option, then why do it? Think about that for a minute. If I tell you right now, you're saved, all of you are saved then the Torah becomes now an option. We don't have to technically do it. But when we understand that <laughs> the Torah, it is a prerequisite before you enter into the kingdom of heaven, folks. Because what does Revelation say? Who are the ones who are outside? Dogs? Idolaters? All those are key terms that goes back to anti-Torah. We'll cover that one day, here soon. So look, unleavened bread marks a life of obedience to Hashem. Meaning, salvation produces obedience. 
I'm going to repeat that again. Salvation produces obedience. If you're not showing fruits, if you're not being led to do that, then you need to revisit. <laughs> Rewind back. Let's go back to Passover. Understand what covenant. That's why yesterday I was so gung-ho about the covenant. Understanding the covenant. It's important to understand the covenant. This is the season in which we look into our hearts and find the leaven that needs to be what? Purge. Now, that leaven can be pride. It can be arrogance. It could be greed. It could be just flat-out disobedience, rebellion. It could be lashon hara, the evil tongue, gossiping. That's a big problem in the body, folks. We love to gossip. And then we make an excuse. Oh, I'm not really gossiping. <clears throat> yeah. So this is the reason we are commanded to get rid of all the leaven in our homes, folks. Now, remember that the term home also tracks back to the understanding of your body, your temple. Because your home is a dwelling place, right? And does scripture says that you are to be a dwelling place for the living God? So can it be safe to say that you are to be a home for his spirit to dwell in? <laughs> if that's true and we read about it, right, then we need to do a lot of purging. We need to do a lot of cleaning, amen? And that's a good thing for you. So look, I want to share something with the Midrash Rabbah concerning this too because they share some great wealth of knowledge concerning the 11 bread and first fruit, okay? The Hazad says this, similarly, you will find regarding the people of Israel when they were in Egypt that they worship idolatry and would not abandon it. As it is stated, no man of them cast away the detestable idols in their eyes, and they did not forsake the idols of Egypt. You find that in Ezekiel chapter 28, by the way, to give you an insight what was taking place there. The Holy One, blessed is he, Therefore said to Moses, as long as the people of Israel worship the Egyptian deities, they cannot be redeemed. That's good. Some good stuff. It could be good, but not true. But I will submit to you, it's true. Because there's no way, Apostle Paul actually, everything that I present to you guys with Hazal folks, as you all know, I always present examples in the Bible to prove it. What does Apostle Paul said? What relationship is the idols of God and what? The temple of the living God with idols. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. That's what Hazal is saying in here in so many words. You cannot be redeemed if you're full of idols in your heart. You know why? Because you cannot accept God's redemption. Your heart will not allow for his Shekinah, his spirit to dwell in you because of your own pride, whatever that might be. So in the same way, we cannot accept the Shekinah, we cannot accept the spirit of God if we want to hold to the traditions of men. Why? Because we end up polluting ourselves and the Shekinah glory is not going to dwell in you. It cannot. Even Paul says it. There's no agreement in it. So what they're saying in here is absolutely true. You cannot be redeemed if you continue to worship idols. Isn't that what was the, uh, the statue for Acts chapter 15 for the Gentiles who were coming into covenant? What was the first thing that they told them? Get rid of all your idols. That's the first thing. Get rid of all your idols. Stop eating things that are strangled in, in blood. And then come to the synagogue every Shabbat to learn Moses. Okay, that goes exactly what they're saying in here. 
You have to get rid of your idols. God tell them that they must abandon their wicked deeds and dis disavow idolatry in order to be redeemed. Do you realize that that's what the covenant that you're making in Passover? You're essentially saying that you will worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're essentially disavowing idolatry at that point. Same thing. It's a wordplay. That's all it is. Look. Thus it is written in our verse, Moses called to all the elders of Israel and said to them, draw away and take for yourself one of the flock for your families and slaughter the Pesach offering. We covered this back in Exodus. When it literally says draw away, why did Moses says draw away? It says draw. That is literally how it's written in Hebrew. I looked it up. Draw away and take for yourself one of the flock. This is when he said take one of the flock for the Pesach offering per family. But before he gave him that commandment, the very first thing that he tells him is, draw away. Why draw away? Look what the sages say. Meaning to say, draw away your hands from idolatry. Before you take of that Passover lamb, draw away. Remove idolatry from you. Then come and offer to me the Pesach offering. Wow. Look. And take for yourselves one of the flock and slaughter the Egyptian deity. Look, for the Egyptians worship sheep also. Well, think about this for a minute, folks. How, how might that have looked? And how many Egyptians did they offended that day? Look, let's continue to see what Hazar says. Or rather, let me go back. The Egyptians, uh, I'm sorry, the Egyptians worship, this, the worship sheep. But not only sheep, they also worship what? Cattle, everything. Which is why when they were in the build a golden calf, it was a what? A golden calf. Even though they didn't call it by its name, they still gave honor to Hashem. We know that. But it draws, it, it brings about into the surface what was going on in the religious agenda at that time. In other words, but what I like about this the most is that they slaughter the sheep that was an idol for Egypt. Guess what, folks? God is commanding us all in this room to slaughter the idol in your life. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> slaughter the idol of your life and then come and worship me. That's a big one, folks. You might want to think about that in a minute. Meditate on that. Call me back in a couple months. Tell me what you think. We have to do this, folks. If we want to, you know that we are in the season right now of the tikkun in Hebrew. We are in the season of reparation. Mashiach is not going to return back if we do not practice tikkun. We have to practice tikkun. We have to practice reparation. That means that, you know what? <laughs> There's just so much that I need to put up with for the sake of the kingdom. If we have that kind of mentality, God's kingdom will prosper. That means that I need to get rid of the things that even though I adore and I love, I have to cut them off. That soul tie needs to die. That means that even though I may not like my brother so much, he kind of rubs me off the wrong way. I still need to because, you know, he's still a brother in the faith and the covenant. I still need to bypass that and understand that he 
the father sees him as worthy. See, when you start seeing that way, you can actually get along with people. Because if God sees you as worthy, even though I don't see you as worthy, but God sees him as worthy. I need to be approached. I need to be careful how I approach you. I need to be careful even how I speak to you. It's called reverence because you are a treasure in his kingdom. If we all actually, actually come in agreement with that, think about how powerful, folks. <laughs> you want to talk about a light in this mountain? The light will shine all the way to Jerusalem, folks. That's what we need to practice. You know, instead of worrying about so much of the details and how to fulfill a commandment, maybe we ought to be looking out to more of how do I, how can I overcome this problem? Which is relationship with one another. Because you see, relationship with God will follow once we learn relationship with one another. We need to first learn to get along as a people. Then we'll worry about how to fulfill the commandments of God. That's why he gave leaders. He gave teachers for that. Don't worry about it. Oh, but I don't trust people out there. Well, that's your problem. Because God did set teachers for a reason. I don't know. You think that God knew they will come to an age that the teachers will lie? Did God mess up somewhere? That we cannot even trust teachers now? Or pastors or rabbis? We cannot do any of this anymore? Yeah, that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think so that you can stay home and figure it out on your own. Yeah, like that's really going to help. So now, Yeshua and an unleavened bread. How does this connect, folks? Well, the unleavened bread breaks easily. I don't know if you guys noticed that last night. Very, 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 very sensitive. It is pierced, and it is simple and not desirable in appearance. Let's face it. You don't look at unleavened bread and say, wow. <laughs> now, now you get a nice loaf of bread, shiny. That looks tasteful, doesn't it? And desirable. But unleavened bread, really? You know, I don't, at least I don't go thinking about, oh, I can't wait to have that unleavened bread. It doesn't look desirable. This is what all connects to the Mashiach ben Yosef. Because Mashiach ben Yosef broke, he was pierced, and he was not desirable. Like the unleavened bread. Look, Isaiah 53, 2 and 5 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. That's why when they put in the pictures, you know, Yeshua looking like Fabio. <laughs> it's like Isaiah 53 says that he was not someone to say, wow, what a good looking guy. He probably was pretty darn ugly. It says it, that we didn't look at him, we didn't esteem him. It's like, ugh, that kind of attitude. And no beauty that we should desire him also. So he didn't, he didn't, he didn't look the part. He was probably skinny, scrungy, just ugly looking. But that was the deliverer of Israel. Our eyes, folks, got to be careful what we see. Because you know why I say this? Because in the latter days, this is important for you. See, you guys don't understand that all these little details are important. Because in the latter days, there's going to come a counterfeit Messiah. And what are we going to be led by? By his glory, his speech, his great looks. I'm sure he's probably going to look like Fabio. You know, strong, very well, properly, you know, all put together. Says, yeah, politically correct for sure. Got to be careful because, you see, human beings, we, we are led astray very easily. 
See, and the enemy knows that. The enemy knows exactly which buttons. The enemy doesn't have to do much. Human beings are so easy to fall. We think that the devil is working full time. He doesn't have to really do much. He's already done enough. The world is already working for him. <laughs> he already did what he needed to do. And now he's sitting on the throne laughing. That's what he's doing. Because we ourselves are already doing it. He doesn't have to do much. He's got the easiest job in the world. It's kind of like multi-level marketing. It produces money. You don't do nothing. That's what's happening right now. He knows exactly. This is what humans desire. If I can put somebody that looks good, that is rich, and they can give them what they want, they're going to fall hell. They're going to fall just worship him. See? And that's what happens. How do we measure success today? Money. Looks. Achievement. Right? That's how we measure success today. Guess what? You're in a trap already. You're already falling for that trap already. Because now all the devil has to do is bring the image that you have presented in your mind and doop, you are a fish caught in the hook. You're done. Look, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Literally, that Hebrew word is sickness. Meaning the Messiah got sick, believe it or not. He actually caught a cold, probably caught the flu too. If it existed back then, but he caught it. He was a familiar with humans. He looked, that's why they didn't believe he was the Mashiach. This guy gets sick too. How can the Messiah get sick? The Messiah heals from sickness. Things that a lot of times we don't understand, folks. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. That's, and you know what, folks? The reason why I share this with you right now is because this information right here in Isaiah 53, 2 and 5, that's you today. That was Isaiah. That was Ezekiel. That was Jeremiah. That was all the prophets of Israel were just like that. They did not esteem them. They were hated. They were persecuted. And they were even killed. That's what it looks like right now. That's what you will look like right now in the eyes of the world. You're not going to be glorified. You're, you're going to be despised. So this is the problem that we're having. Pause for a minute. This is the issue that we're having right now, especially for the young generation. We're having this problem. Because we want to be glorified and we want to be esteemed and we want to be elevated in the eyes of men. And guess what? The enemy is using that against you. Because when you come to the faith, that's not going to happen. Men is not going to adore you. You're not going to have that glory that you desire. But guess what? That's just temporarily because the glory that's going to wait you later on, folks, is going to far exceed what the world can give you now. Anything. That the world can give you right now. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isn't that true? We don't see somebody making, or if we don't see somebody in the image that we created, oh, they're cursed by God. How can that be? God produces riches. God produces wealth. God produces health. God produces everything. And if you don't meet that criteria, then automatically we put him aside and say, he's not really of God. God really doesn't favor him. That's what they did with Mashiach. It's exactly what they did with him. They basically profiled him. And that's what we do today. We profile each other. 
oh, he's not making the money that I think he should be making, or he doesn't have the, he's not driving the car that he should be driving. God cannot be blessing him. Because you see, we don't understand the struggles of this world. Because you know why? Because we want the riches of the world now. You know, kind of like that commercial, I want my money and I want it now. <laughs> Call 1-800. You see? That's the problem, but we want it now. We want the kingdom now. We want the riches now. <laughs> That's the problem, folks. This is not the season for that. This season right now is to look for the scattered tribes of Israel. The season right now is to be the John the Baptist, to call out people to repentance. That is the season right now. It's not the season for you to sit on the throne and look pretty. That season is going to come. It will be here. But the season right now is for you to get up, get off of yourself, take a break from you, okay? Because that's what you need. A lot of us need a break from us. Put on the armor of God and get into warfare. That's the season right now. And the problem is that we're in the battlefield. We're in the battlefield and we're looking for vacation in Hawaii. You know, when you're in the army, they send you out to the, to the field. You're in the field. You don't ask your commander, okay, I, oh, you don't ask the commander, I want to be stationed in Hawaii. <laughs> They're going to laugh in your face. You're stationed wherever we put you. That's where you're going. And you may be there for three years, four, five, ten years, six months. It doesn't matter because you're there to serve. What happens when you join the army? You pledge. You said, I belong to the army now. Wherever they send me, send me. You know, kind of like the Isaiah, Lord, send me. Right? This is what we're not understanding, and we're falling for it, and it's creating a ripple through the whole body. Look, 11 bread, believers in Yeshua. Now, we understand that 11 bread, we can see the prophetic picture of Yeshua, but how about believers? We are not desirable by the world. We are simple and not puffed up. We have been pierced with Messiah. Look. Romans chapter 6, 4 and 6. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the what? Newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Wow. How much greater this is going to be? <laughs> Think about it. Don't be an Esau. That's what just came to my mind. Don't be an Esau. Don't sell your birthright for a bowl of lentil soups. Because you happen to be hungry at that very moment. Don't trade in the treasures that God has for you for the temporary things here in life. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to what? Nothing. So that we will no longer be enslaved to sin anymore. Galatians 2.19 says, For through the law I die to the law. Now I fill in the blanks in there. I put it in parentheses so you can understand it. Because that's a very confusing one. For through the law I die to the law. What? For through the law of God, I die to the law of sin and death. And if you don't believe me, let's continue reading. So that I might live to God. Now, how can you live to God if you're not living according to his word? 
I, I have been crucified with Messiah. It is no longer I who live, but Christ Messiah who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what it's saying, that through the law of God, I die to the law of sin and death because that's what he came to do. Look, John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And part of the problem that we have in today is that we don't like the fact that the world hates us. It really is a problem for many of us. We struggle with that. Acceptance from men has always been an issue for men, especially male. Because with us, let's face it, I think the Lord threw a little bit more testosterone, so there's more arrogance there. Let's face it. But it stands true. The world hates you. Remember, hated me first. Now, why did he say, remember, hated me first? To give you encouragement. To know that you are on the right track. Because God knew that we will second guess it. Oh, everybody hates me, so I must be doing something wrong. No, he's saying, no, you're doing probably something right. If they all hate you and, you're, and what you're doing is matching my word, because, you know, people can hate you for the right reasons. <laughs> okay? There's a lot of lunatics out there that will quote you that scripture. Oh, the world hates you, but they, they're following lunatics. No. If, if everything matches, then you're probably doing something right. If you're matching what the word says. If you were in the world, the world will love you as its own, it says. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 1 Corinthians 4.10 says, we are fools for Messiah's sake. Notice what he says. We are fools for Messiah's sake. Why? Because the world is going to look at you as a fool. Why are they going to look at you like a fool? I don't know, because you speak like words like, you know, offerings. Burnt offerings, leaven, <laughs> covenant, heresy. <laughs> That's the reason why the world is going to look at you as a fool. Because when you read God's words, guess what? For the world is a mockery, which means they're going to hate you for it, and they're going to mock you. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are disrupt, uh, disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and, and buffeted and homeless. This is coming from a man who used to have it all. Now, I'm going to make a disclaimer. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to have to go through this. And this is certainly not the sign that you're doing something good all the time. Right? Like I said, it's all context. Rav Shaul's call entail him having to become like nothing in order to glorify God's name. That was his calling. Now it stands true. If the Lord does call you for that, are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to be the one who is homeless? Are you willing to be the one who is hungry? Are you willing to be the one who dresses poorly? Are you willing? I'm not saying that everybody has to go through this. Not everybody's call is the same. King David's call was wealth. God made him wealthy. Solomon, super wealthy, to glorify his name. In the same way, he made poor people to glorify his name. He made middle class people to glorify his name. 
In every season, in every time, in every circumstances, there's a role for you to play. Stop focusing so much on, well, I'm supposed to look like that guy over there. Exactly. Dainu, a Dainu attitude. This is what the Lord has me right now. Am I, if I'm supposed to live in a stick home or in a tent, guess what? Bless his holy name. Make the best out of it. Show the world that that doesn't own you anymore. The material of the world doesn't own you anymore. He made a man sick, blind for years for one purpose and one purpose only. For that very moment in history that God healed him. Mind-blowing. Man was born blind for the purpose of that moment right there in history, he says. Even Peter said, what sin did this man has committed? Peter even fell into that. What sin did he commit, God? Look, he's blind. He must have done something wrong. I love it. Yeshua rebuked him. This man has committed no sin. He has done no wrong. His blindness is so the Son of Man may receive glory. Got to be careful, folks. In every season, in every, every time, in everything, we just need to look at Job. Job lost everything. Same thing. And not just lost everything, lost his health, too. In everything, God has a purpose. What we need to do is, instead of looking at the external and judging the external, we need to judge, hey, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? It's always a good idea to look back and say, okay, Lord, am I following what I'm supposed to do? And if it's all checking out right and you're doing what you're supposed to do, then guess what? Glorify God. Because that means that you're being tested. And there's a divine purpose. You may not never understand it, and you need to be okay with that also. And we, are, and we labor and, work, and working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Wow, what a beautiful picture for believers and Messiah. Sign me up. Where do I sign, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you see what I mean? What scripture is teaching in here is that not everybody has to go through this, but if the call entails that, are you willing to take that yoke? See, that's the, that's the purpose of all this. Whether God has you rich, whether God has you poor, whether God has you uh, and extremely healthy, whether God doesn't have you extremely healthy, what are you going to do with the circumstances that you're under right now? Are you going to complain? Are you going to curse God? I mean, that's what he, uh, Job's friend told him that. Just, oh, his wife. Curse God and die. That's it. Be done with it. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 8. Purge out there the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Purge out the old leaven so that you may be a lump as you are unleavened. For even Messiah our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven. It's interesting. Like I mentioned yesterday in the Passover, it actually tells us to keep the feast. Literally in the New Testament, it's telling believers to keep the feast. It says, not with old leaven, though. Don't keep the feast if you're not going to plan on changing. You might as well not keep it. Stay home. Go watch some sports or something. If you're going to come to the feast, let it be because you really want the change. Amen? Neither with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and what? Truth. Now the prophetic message of the first and seven-day Sabbath of unleavened bread. Notice that in the unleavened bread feast, you have a first-day Sabbath and you have a uh, seven-day Sabbath. I want to share something with you here.
Leviticus 12, 16 says, On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. So those are two high Sabbaths. We already discussed that, right? So let's see this. Unleavened bread alludes to purity, right? We do know that. This is the, the whole teaching that we've been talking about. Unleavened bread, it has to do with obedience, purity, essentially. The first day of unleavened bread is a Sabbath, and the seventh day of unleavened bread is a Sabbath. So look at this. The first day alludes to the first millennium. Adam made in the image of God without sin. What about the seventh day? The seventh day alludes to the seventh millennium when men will be made again in the image of God. In both days, it represents purity. Remember, the context of unleavened bread is what? Purity. In that first millennium, there was a man who was completely sinless, and that was Adam, before his fall. In the seventh millennium, we will experience that again when Yeshua returns back. I didn't get that out of any book, by the way. <laughs> so look, Genesis 127 says, so God created man in his what? In his own image, it says. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But look what happens in Genesis 5.3. In Genesis 5.3, it says, When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. It doesn't say that his children were born in the image of God anymore. You know, I love it when people say, well, we're born in the image of God. I say, no, you're not. You're born in the image of your forefathers. Don't you dare say you're in the image of God. It says it right there. In his own likeness. But in here, when Adam was created, it says in the image of God. What's the difference? Sin came into the picture. See, Adam was already, a, Adam became essentially a sinful nature now. So all his, all his offspring are now going to be born after his image. Not the image of the creator anymore. It's important to understand that. Don't come to me telling me that you're in the image of God. I'm going to hit you with a builder's cube, just like Shemaim did, okay? <laughs> but this is the reason why we sin, folks. Every man is born into sin because you're not born in the image of God anymore. I've got a newsflash for you. But you will. You will again. Look, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Change. Why do we have to be changed if we're already in the image of God? <laughs> what are we going to change? Is there something higher? We don't think of these things, do we? See, I got nothing to do all day, so I think about these things. Okay, let's move on. So it says in 52, in a moment, it says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. By the way, that word is shofar. Those are those things that Mark blows in here, right? For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, what? Imperishable. And we shall be changed. See, that imperishable that we're going to be raised, it's going to go back to the purity of the first day of Adam. Now, what does that look like? I have no idea. Honestly, I, I often think about what did Adam really look like? What did he feel? Really, there's no point of reference. No matter how much I try to wrap my mind around it and study it, and I've done a lot of studies with the Chazal and, and read a lot, a lot. I even have to wear glasses now, all the reading that I've done. Just on this subject. <laughs> But I, there's no answer. There really is no answer. There's no point of reference. What, what are we going to feel? 
when we're in an incorruptible body? What are we going to look like in an incorruptible body? We don't know. We don't know. But that's part of the great greatness of this, that we're looking forward to it. That's what keeps us going. At least it does me. So now we're going to finalize the study today, and that leads us to the last spring feast. And that is what? First fruits. So now that we understand the procession in here, or the order rather, Passover, unleavened bread, Passover, that it means salvation by the blood of the Lamb, unleavened bread, living a life of what? Obedience to the Father. So if the salvation that you're picturing to me does not match that order, we're going to have some problems, Lucy. <laughs> I'm not going to come in agreement with you. It has to be the salvation that is prescribed in the Torah. Amen? Now at least it's the first fruits, the third feast. First fruits. Let's look at this. Leviticus 23.10 says, Speak to the children of Israel, and you shall say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, you shall reap its harvest. Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruit, it says. Okay? Now pay attention because everybody's been talking to me about first fruits. So let's look at this. So it says you have to bring the sheaf of the first fruit of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before Hashem for your acceptance, it says. So what is the purpose of waving the sheaf? It's for the acceptance of the person. Okay, on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest waves it. So let's look at this. The first fruits, believe it or not, it is not habikurim. It is rasha, uh, It is the Hebrew word rashat, which is from bereshit in the beginning. It means literally the top, the best, the chief, the choice part, essentially. Okay, so what was it that they needed to do? They needed to bring in the best first fruits. Let's look at this. Messiah Yeshua was the first fruits to the Father when he resurrected from the grave. See, I'm showing you how Yeshua fulfilled it, but then I'm going to show you how you need to fulfill it. Because remember, everything that he did, you need to be a mirror of what he did. This is, what, this is the part that we were never taught, that you're supposed to mimic him. This is what Apostle Paul says. Imitate me as I imitate Messiah. Very Jewish concept, by the way. You mimic the rabbi. Right? Okay, so we have to mimic the rabbi, the head rabbi, Yeshua, our Messiah. So in accepting the blood of the lamb on Passover and living the unleavened life, which is obedience, guess what? We become his first fruits. The result of first fruits, you cannot be a first fruits. There's conditions for first fruits. In order for you to be a first fruit, first of all, you have to go through Passover and you have to live through unleavened bread. If you don't go through Passover and unleavened bread, how are you going to be a first fruits? This is the order. What does three represent in Hebrew? Life. First fruit is the season of life. That's why it is the first offering to the Lord. It represents life, folks. How do we get life? When we go through the Passover lamb and we go through Mount Sinai, the word of Hashem. Look. We become his first fruit. Essentially, we become his remnant. Look at this, folks. Matthew 20, 16 says, So the last shall be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are what? Chosen. Now, we already discussed this. We're not talking about numbers. Few are chosen means that those are, there's a lot of people in the field, but they are ill-equipped. Literally, the Greek word for, for that in there literally means you are ill-equipped. So there's a lot of people out there, a lot of workers, but they're not trained. You just got a lot of workers. That's it. 
Nobody has training whatsoever. Not even the managers have training. You ever run a company where nobody has training? How successful that is. Tell me, Sean, how successful that is. <laughs> when you run a company, nobody's trained. Not even you for your position, you're trained. Yeah, I can see the profits going high. But this is what we're saying. He's saying in here that that's the problem. The fields are full of people, but the front, there's nobody qualified. So let's look at this. I'm going to go back. Few are chosen. Let's look at that word for chosen in here. In Greek, it is eklektos. Eklektos in, in Greek and in, in Spanish is electos. It means to select by implication a favor, a chosen, an elect. It's saying in here that the ones that are, the ones that are few is the remnant. That's what it's talking about. The first fruits will be a remnant. Now, again, let's put this in perspective. How and why do I care? Because you see, the problem is, the problem is that today we have the mega churches everywhere, and it's all about volume. Again, so easy to deceive. Because you see, if I walk into an assembly and I don't see 400 people, then God must not be there. Signing out, goodbye. This is the problem. See, we have adopted a, a Roman mentality, folks, completely Roman and Greek. By definition, a remnant is small. Do you know what was your average synagogue uh, attendees in the first, second century, even up to today in, in, in Israel? The average attendance in a synagogue, it's about 20 to 30 people. Wow. 30, you banking. 40, forget it. You're the talk of the town. But honestly, that's, that's normal because there's a synagogue every corner. Because the idea, the idea behind that, why they put so many synagogues everywhere, is that the rabbi is supposed to disciple. You can't disciple when you got 500 people under your, ain't going to work. It's personal. Accountability. Family. See? But today, we have turned this into a rock concert. Hundreds and thousands. And we don't even know the name of probably not even one of them. That's the whole thing. That's not discipling. That's not a remnant, by the way. That is not a remnant. See, that's why the problem is that when we think about these things, we're like, wow, a remnant. That's a lot of remnants. I mean, when you think about the greatest right now, um, uh, uh, ministries out there, they have thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands. It's like, wow, that's just one. Then you look at the worldwide, wow, that's a lot of people. That's not a remnant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and by the way, when you see what they're teaching, it makes sense why they got so many. Look, Mark 13 says, 26, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with a great power and glory, it says. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his what? His elect. When he returns back, he's coming, guess for who? His elect. Stop trying to save the world. Because he's not coming to save the world. He's coming for his elect. That's who he's returning for. He's going to gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Guess what, folks? There's not a crevice on this earth, not one, that he's going to forget. 
So stop worrying about the little tribes in Africa that don't know anything. Poor girl, those guys. You know, what you're doing is you're reasoning yourself out of obedience. That's what you're doing. Because that's what we do. Well, okay, you got me with this obedience thing, Richard. But what about those guys in, you know, for instance, in the middle of Brazil and the... The, or in the jungle, in the rainforest, you know, they don't know anything. You mean to tell me that they're going to go to hell? I don't know. What I do know is that he's coming to the four corners and there's not a crack in this world that he's going to forget his remnant. And if there's a remnant in the rainforest, rest assured the king will collect them. What are you doing about your walk? Now let's focus on you. Because you're thinking about the guys in Brazil. I'm going to worry about you. Because at least they don't know anything about it. God will deal with them. But you know something about it, and you're trying to weasel your way out of it. Because that's really, when they're saying that, it's a, you got to understand and read in between the lines. The more you do this, the more you will realize it. Romans 9.27, but Isaiah cries on behalf of Israel, he says. If the number of the sons of, a son of, of Israel shall be a sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Did you realize what he just said? He said that, there, look. But Isaiah cries out on behalf of Israel, the number of the sons of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. Can you count the sand of the sea? No. That means that there's tons out there, but only a remnant out of that is going to be safe. Even those who are supposedly Israel are not guaranteed to make it, folks. It's only a remnant. Because how many people can... How many people right now can claim that they are Israel by bloodline, but yet they deny Yeshua? Yeah, we've got to be careful with that. See, Romans 11.5 says, Even so that at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Revelation 12.17, And the dragon was wrought with the woman and went to make war with the remnant. It's always about the remnant, folks. You know why? Because this ties into the first fruits. The first fruit is a portion. It's not the whole harvest. <laughs> it's a portion. So it comes to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keeps who? What, by the way, who's the remnant? But it gives you the answer. Good answer, by the way. But it tells you who's the remnant. The description of the remnant says, I'm quoting what the word says, to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Messiah Yeshua. There it is. There it is. So if we claim it to be the remnant, we better, we better, we better come in agreement with that. We better be walking it. It's okay to call yourself the remnant. That's good. But now we need to walk it. We need to be the, meet the remnant. Then we need to dis that remnant needs to fit the profile that God says is his remnant. That's the whole thing. That's Revelation 12, 17, by the way. That hasn't happened yet. You can't say, well, that's owed. Right? You know? Such a broken record. I'm not kidding you. It's old, Richard. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Messiah has been raised from the dead and has become the first fruit. You see the connection here with first fruits now. Habikurim. First fruits of those having fallen asleep. For since death is through a man, resurrection of dead is also through a man. So many people ask, why did the word of God have to come human? Because according to the law, it says that death came through a man. So guess what? Resurrection needs to come through a man. It's just one of those things that we're not going to understand. It's a God thing. 
But one thing that Apostle Paul is sharing is that obviously there's something there. If death came through a man, then a man has to come and bring resurrection, which means that's why Yeshua had to become a bondservant and come as a man. Make sense? How awesome. You know, when you understand really the story, you appreciate Yeshua a whole lot more. A whole lot more. For since that is through one man, resurrection, uh, resurrection of the dead is also through a man. For as all die in Adam, so also shall be made alive in Messiah. To me, it's very clear. Honestly, I don't find it that hard to conceive and wrap around my mind. Yeah, we all through Adam died. Okay, now through the, the, the resurrection of Yeshua, we're going to be made alive. Very simple. And each in his own order. Messiah, the first fruit. Then those who are of Messiah at his coming. That means that if the first lump is holy, the rest of the lump is holy. Getting that? Romans eleven sixteen. Now, if the first fruit is set apart, meaning holy, the lump is also. And if the roots are set apart, so are what? The branches. If he is holy, guess what? You are holy. If he is the first fruit, then you are the first fruit. That's what Apostle Paul is trying to say. Very Jewish concept. Again, very Jewish concept. Look. Revelation 14.4, back to Revelation again. They are those who were not defiled with woman, for they are maidens. They are those following the lamb wherever he leads them on. They will redeem, that means salvation. That's what salvation means, you were redeemed. By the way, salvation means that you were purchased. That's it. That's all that means. Don't think that because you were purchased, you automatically have a ticket to heaven. That's the misconception today. That's the deception. You were purchased. That's it. You can choose to walk out of your purchase. You can choose to say, I am walking out of this. Simply put, I don't want it anymore. You can change your mind. You got free will. That's why Apostle Paul says, walk out your what? Salvation with what? Fear and trembling. What do you think he was talking about? Because Apostle Paul was a rabbi. He would have understood this. Don't think for one minute that because you were purchased, they automatically at seal and guarantee. No, it doesn't work that way, folks. Not biblically speaking. So it says in here, these are the ones that have then been redeemed among them, being the first fruits to Elohim and to the Lamb as well. Leviticus 23.10, moving on in here. Speak to the children of Israel, and you shall say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, and you shall reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits. So let's look at this, okay? The sheaf in Hebrew is the omer. Okay, this is what we count the omer counting, okay? Which we're going to, we start actually tonight. You start counting the omer, by the way. So before you leave, make sure that you get a calendar. We printed calendars last week for everybody so that you can follow along with that and the blessings are there and what you need to recite every day, okay? You're commanded to do that, by the way. That's not a decree that's from this church or this assembly. That's what this, the Hebrew scripture says. That's what the word says. And I will prove that even in the New Testament. So look, the omer, which means a dry measure, that is one-tenth of an ephah, about two liters. Yeah, like that means anything to us today. So let's look at this, right? <laughs> let's really see what it's entailing in here, okay? Let's see this. So when the barley became harvestable in most of the land, by the way, in the first fruit, what they harvest was barley at this season, okay? So it says in here, each person was to take the first of what he cut and take it to Jerusalem, to the priest to be acceptable by Hashem on the feast of first fruit, doing unleavened bread. 
okay? What I'm presenting to you in here is historical. It's not my opinion, okay? The process to get the Omar ready was to beat the sheaf, essentially. Each person had to cut his own sheaf. The people could not bring the offering themselves, only the priests, which is essentially like a type of Yeshua, could bring the offering on behalf of the people, okay? Then he will wave the Omer up to heaven, essentially. So I want to share something with you folks regarding this. And it's called the Omer and the Manna. There is a connection that Hazal makes in here with the sheaf, that, which is the Omer, that you bring in for first fruit. There's a connection with that in the manna in the wilderness, believe it or not. It's amazing. Look at this. It says, in the wilderness, when the manna fell from heaven every day and provided an Omer, do you know that when it says that the portion came down from heaven in the book of Exodus, it literally says there an Omer? They received the Omer in the wilderness. That's what it's talking about, the one-tenth of a chief, a leader. Okay? So it says in here that when a manna fell from heaven every day, it provided an Omer sustenance for every individual, essentially. No one can doubt God's role as provider of his food and sustainer of his life. No one can doubt it. Why? Because what are the odds that the Omer will come down from heaven and it was exactly to the measure of each family. I mean, that, was, that must have been miraculously. It's like, wow, what are the odds? You know, the guy next door received more than I did, but he's got like 12 kids. You know, I only got one, so I only received this little bit. But it was according to the Omer, the apportion of the household. But this unique period of clarity, they say, was not meant to last. This is what we get so wrapped up today because we're still looking for the miracles of God. It says that it was not the last. By the way, the miracles of God still exist. I'm talking about the signs, more, more importantly. Once the nation would enter the Holy Land and return to the normal routine, which we find out in Joshua, of planting and harvesting, its people would face the challenge of discerning God's hand in the everyday natural process involved in tilling the land and other aspects of ordinary life. What Hazal is saying in here, folks, is essentially that now that they're coming into the land, now it's no longer can they just wait for the manna to come down already in a portion, but rather now that they actually have to go out there and till the ground. They have to work. You know, it's, 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 it's going to be just like the neighbor next door. He has to go and plant. He has to harvest. You're doing exactly what everybody else does. Let's put it that way. You're kind of blending in now. You have to get up just like the guy next door who doesn't obey God and do the exact same thing as he's doing it. He's saying when that time happens, okay, this is the reason why he did what he did in the wilderness. It's a reminder for them. Now, because they have to till the land, because they still have to toil the land, how do they know it is God doing it and not their own hands? It's a good question, isn't it? How many times we say, well, God provided this for me, but you kill yourself working for it. Was it your hand that did it or was it God? It's a legitimate question. This is what they're presenting in here. So let's move on. Let's see what Hazard says. How would the Jews preserve the manna's legacy and maintain their awareness of God's daily involvement in their lives? It's a good question. Now that we have to literally toil to death, to bring that harvest, how will we credit this to God without looking like fools? 
It's a good question. You know what? I got to tell you, I experienced one of that. I used to hate it when people tell me, well, God gave it to me. Please, you kill yourself. Just like the guy next door. He doesn't even claim God. At least he's being honest. He worked his tail off. That's it. I, honestly, I, it just turns me off completely. You know, honestly, it's like, it, I loved it. This When I read this article, it was like, wow, this is amazing. This is exactly what God said would happen that people would say. People would say, and they have every right to say that. How do you know it's God doing it for you and it's not your hands? Let's continue reading in here. Enter now, because of this, it says, enter the Omer offering, named for the erstwhile daily dose, an Omer, of manna and consisting of the season's first barley flour. By offering the first sample of the new harvest to God, one token gift from the nation as a whole, we acknowledge him as the source of the entire year's sustenance. Governing the forces of nature. In other words, what they're saying in here is, okay, we're not going to do, even though we are getting up and we're doing kind of like what everybody else has to do, we got commanded that. He's saying what's going to set us apart and what we got to know that it's not the works of our hands is that we are giving to God the first of everything. That's something that the nations are not doing. And because of why we are doing what we're doing, God is going to bless the land. He's going to send the right winds. He's going to send the rain at the appropriate time, and it's going to blossom. No famine. Thank you. Look, as it now becomes clear, it was no coincidence that the Omer offering was prescribed for the 16th of Nisan beginning with the nation's entry to Israel. And we read that in the book of Joshua. Interesting. For that was precisely when the Israelite supply of manna was to finally end, meaning the manna exists from coming anymore. But they were to take the concept of the manna with them into the land and apply that in their tilling the ground and harvesting. Look, so it says in here, uh, for that was precisely when the Israelite supplies manna will finally end the shortly after their crossing of the Jordan into the promised land. On that day, the nation brought its first Omer offering. As if to say, from now on, we will demonstrate through this offering that uh, they, although the actual manna is no longer with us, the conviction instilled in us by the heavenly gift remains deep in our hearts that every one of us is graced by God's intimate care and concern. This is the difference, folks. You see, the world, you got to understand, it's all a similitude. The world has an, a, a plan to make you successful, right? I mean, you name it, there's all kinds of things out there that you can do. You can invest in everything out there that you can think of today to make your crops basically what? Double. You even have GMO seed today to make your crops succeed, right? So you don't get the pesticides in it and all that kind of good stuff. God is saying in his kingdom, it's the same thing. Whoops. And in his kingdom, it's the exact same thing. In his kingdom... However, he's saying, bring to me the Omer. Bring to me the Omer, and I will bless your land, essentially, in remembrance of the manna. Remember that I'm the one who sustains you. It's not the works of your hands. Now, unfortunately, 
men has to follow that. You got the prosperity gospel. You know, bank in, you know, you'll produce more. You know, the concept of what they say, folks, it's not untrue. The problem is that their intentions of it is unfortunately evil. But it doesn't take away that what they're actually saying is true. You know, we invest in God's kingdom. God's saying that if, you know, and the Hazal even goes on to saying, which is amazing, that men always, uh, and the words that he exactly he used, he says that men always thinks that by giving, he becomes poor. But it's the other way around. By giving in the kingdom of God, you prosper more. See, it's the, it's the total opposite of what man says. So you can see that, you know, there's two kingdoms with two purposes, with two instructions. Which one are we following? That's why the Omer, even though we don't have the, the manna today, Israel continue the, the, um, the establishment, rather, or the, um, the law of concerning the Omer. They continue that even though the manna was not falling from heaven, even though even when the temple was destroyed after 70 A.D., they continue providing the Omer offering in the synagogues because the synagogues were an extension of what? The temple. So, and that every harvest, they say, indeed, every meal is no less a gift from above than the manna that fell for, for our ancestors in the wilderness. On that day, too, they began performing the mitzvah of Sefiras HaOmer. That is the counting the 49 days unto the festival of Shavuot. <laughs> how do you think that in Acts chapter 2, all the people were there? Why? How did they, they know that on that day it was Shavuot? They were counting. So you have to count to get to Pentecost. Otherwise, there is no Pentecost. Interesting. Today, most of the churches celebrate Pentecost. Yeah. And what the idea, the reality is you celebrate, you, you know, even denomination, they stem from that, but you're celebrating Pentecost, not knowing that that is actually a Jewish festival in the Torah. It's true. Oh, well, we, you know, we're a spirit believing church. You know, we celebrate Pentecost. Okay. That's in the Torah. And how did you arrive to Pentecost to begin with? Who's been counting for you? Interesting that most churches actually celebrate Pentecost on the actual day of Pentecost. Which makes me wonder, who's keeping the count for them? Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Look, in this way, they show that recognizing God as the source of one's provision is not enough, they say. I'm going to reread that. In this way, they show that recognizing God as the source of one's provision is not enough. One must also contemplate God's aim in granting us these provisions to give us life and strength with which to implement his will and fulfill our destiny as laid out by the Torah that he gave us on Shavuot. That's amazing. It's saying essentially what he basically he's trying to say. It is not enough that he's providing. We don't just stop in there. The idea is that our whole life needs to be devoted to him. Our will. He gives us the strength to be able to plant. He gives us the strength to be able to go to work. He gives us the strength for all these different things. But we bow our will essentially to him. So that is the sole purpose of this. So now, history shows the priest coming to wave the first fruit Omar before Hashem on the first day of the week after Passover, folks. 
Now, I'm going to reveal something very interesting in here. If the first wave omer was accepted on that day, then all the rest of the harvest of the year will be blessed. That's why it was so important that the priest takes that and that Hashem would accept it because if there was an accepting, then it will be good. You know that your crops were going to be blessed for the whole entire year, but if he didn't, then you can expect the famine, essentially. But look at this. For we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans chapter 6, 5. Connecting this with the first fruit offering. John 21. But, uh, but on the first day of the week, Miriam Magdalene came early to the tomb, darkness not yet being on it, and she saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. She came in on the first day. That would have been Saturday night. At some point between Saturday night and before sunrise on Sunday, doesn't tell you exactly when, because it was still dark. Well, guess what? Three o'clock in the morning is still dark. So at some point between there and there, our Messiah resurrected. But one thing for certain, it was still considered the first day of the week. It was still considered the first day of the week. So look, the counting of the Omer in connection with the first fruit, we're going to end with this. We are told to count 50 days to the Shavuot, which is Pentecost, starting with the day after the Sabbath doing unleavened bread, right? But which Sabbath do we start counting? The holy day. Do we start counting from the 15th RV, which is unleavened bread, or the weekly Sabbath? Because it says in the morrow after the Sabbath, you have to start to count. Now, most of Israel today, most of Israel today counts after, uh, after unleavened bread. But what I want to share with you today, why do they do that? Let me just share a little bit of history in here. We're going to look at, first of all, let's see what the scripture says, number one. Okay, it says, and from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count for yourself seven completed Sabbaths, it says. Until the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, you count 50 days. Then you shall bring the new grain offering to Hashem. So part of Shavuot is connected with the first fruit. Because the remainder of that offering that you gave is what you will present in Shavuot. This time will be leaven. Okay. But we'll cover that more later. So let's see this. This can actually be very clearly um, understood if we go back to the Hebrew. For instance, there's one Hebrew word in the weekly Sabbath, which is, and I put it in here, H7676, which is Shabbat. Okay? There's another Hebrew word for the high holy day, which is Shabbaton. So Shabbat and Shabbaton are not the same. They don't even spell the same. Okay? So let's look at this. This second word for the Holy Sabbath, the High Holy Sabbath, is also used in Leviticus 23:24 for the Feast of Trumpets and on Leviticus 23:39 for the Holy Day Sabbath during the Feast of Tabernacle. So this is concerning the High Holy Day, Sabbaton. Leviticus 23:15 that tells about when to start the Pentecost count, the word for weekly Sabbath is clearly used, and that is H7676, which is Shabbat. That is the weekly Shabbat. Now, why is it that it's H7676, the weekly Shabbat? How do we know is that actually the seven-day week Sabbath? Because the seven-day week Sabbath in Hebrew is the only Sabbath that is known as HaShabbat. Not just Shabbat, HaShabbat. There's a definite article on the HaShabbat because it is the Sabbath, essentially. Look. History proves that in the year Yeshua was crucified, we could find this through the history in Josephus' letters, they started the counting after the weekly Sabbath. 
that would have been in the, in the year that Yeshua was crucified, okay? However, in 70 AD, the last Sahedrin in charge, uh, in charge had decreed to start the counting after the first day of unleavened bread. So what I'm trying to tell you is that the decrees change. From the time Yeshua was crucified, at that year, the decree was that it would be on the weekly Sabbath. Whoever was in charge of the Sahedrin would dictate when they will start. That is what I'm trying to tell you. So you're going to find different dates depending on what year you were looking at. The very last decree, right before 70 AD, the Sahedrin had decreed that it would start on the day after unleavened bread. Now, one must ask, so that why the Jewish people are doing that? Because Deuteronomy tells you that they, whatever they instruct you to do, you are to do. That's why. So, however, Scripture says that if they lead you astray from the Word of God, then you are not to follow that. But if it's just a decree concerning how to fulfill a festival, you follow what the Sahedrin decrees. In other words, if we have right now the temple being raised in Israel... Let's just hypothetically speaking, we got a temple and the Sahedrin there says that we are to start the counting on the day after unleavened bread. You have no right to go into the Sahedrin and start arguing with them. Because actually that not even in Yeshua's day, that was acceptable. Let's put it that way. OK, you getting it? So if you wonder why the Jewish people do it on the day immediately after unleavened bread, it's because that was the last Sahedrin that decreed that. So they're going based on the very last decree. If the last decree would have been Saturday, they would have been doing Saturday, you know, that weekly Sabbath. But the last decree was that given. So what I'm basically trying to tell you is that it doesn't matter. You know, don't argue with these things. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You know, it, if you want to do it the day after the bread, you could do your counting the day after. We as a congregation, I like to keep, kind of keep it the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath. Because it says seven county Sabbaths. The Hebrew does say Hashabbat, so it's there. We got that aspect of it. But if I'm in Israel, I'm not going to fight with the rabbis because they're doing it in the day after unleavened bread. Because I understand where they're coming from, and it's okay. It's not a big deal. They're following a decree that the Sahedrin had established right at 70 AD. By the way, that's Torah. That is Torah. Food for thought. So in conclusion, folks, finally, right? I've been saying that for the last 30 minutes. So in conclusion now, folks, the first three springs... The first three spring feasts reveal the work of Hashem and the fulfillment in Yeshua, our Messiah. Okay? It also reveals our role in accepting his blood for forgiveness. The feast reveals redemption preceding a life of obedience. That's the key. Preceding a life of obedience. That's what salvation is supposed to produce. We must be careful not to tell, not to take the covenant that God that made us holy as a means of a walking of disobedience. In other words, don't take the covenant of Passover and use it as a license to go and do whatever you want. It was never meant for that. Remember, the Torah was given to a people who were already what? Saved. If anybody asks you why you guys are going back to the law, because we were saved. That's the best answer you could give him. Why do you keep the, the Sabbath and all those things? Because I was saved. Huh? Okay, now you've got something to talk about. Let me educate you on this. More than likely, they're not going to accept it, but that's okay. So let us walk in the salvation uh, that the Father gave us and through his grace. And we're going to finalize with this. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. 14. Blessed are they that do his what? 
commandments that they may what? Do you know, do you know that you have to actually have the right to the tree of life? You have to earn it. Thank you. That's where I was going. To have the right means you have to earn it. <laughs> you have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the what? Who's going to enter to the holy city? Blessed are those doing his commandments, folks. Don't be mad at me. Be mad at the word. I'm just a messenger. That's what it says. And it's very clear all through scripture. Very, very consistent. You want to enter into those gates? By the way, in the book of Revelation, where is their gate for Gentiles? Yeah, where's the 13 gate? Thank you. Where's the 13 gate? I'm still looking for the 13 gate. Yes. 12 tribes of Israel. That's my point. You're proving my point, brother. But that's what I'm saying. Where is the 13 gate? And why I'm saying that, because today we're so quick to say, well, I'm not part of Israel. I'm a Gentile who follows, who follows Torah. Okay. That doesn't exist, buddy. Where's your gate then? See, we got to be careful what we're acknowledging. I claim Israel all day long because guess what? There's only 12 gates and I want to march in. So may you be blessed by this teaching, folks. Shalom, shalom, and have a great week. Thank you for being a part of our teaching. Be sure to visit our website at www.thefoundationoftheword.org for additional resources and to help us financially. It is our hope and desire that what we teach will help you in your walk with Hashem Elohim, that we bring more souls into His kingdom. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.